Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A warm welcome to First Move. Fantastic to be with you. And plenty to come this hour on this, the next to last day of February. Financial markets remain cautionary as U.S. data stays inflationary. Brexit talks today, we hope they're exemplary, while election results in Nigeria, still very preliminary. And returns from one of the most consequential elections in Nigeria's history are finally trickling in after logistical issues and frustrating vote tally delays. An extremely tight three-way race that could go to a runoff. But a big early victory for the third-party candidate, Peter Obi. We are live in Lagos with all the latest. So much at stake for Africa's largest economy and most populous nation as it grapples with fuel and cash shortages, rampant corruption in the oil and gas sector, a punishing debt load and double-digit inflation. We'll be discussing the way forward for Nigeria later in the show with Zainad Ahmed, the country's finance minister. And from presidential votes to stock market quotes, take a look at this. The major U.S. averages on track for an early session bounce after the worst week on Wall Street since December. Europe, as you can see, also headed for a strong session result. The S&P 500, meanwhile, falling more than 1% on Friday and more than 2% for the week. That after the Federal Reserve's preferred measure of inflation came in hotter than expected. All this, of course, raising fresh uncertainties over the path of borrowing costs higher I think is the message rather than anything else. And softness in and across Asian markets amid busy news flow. The United States once again warning Beijing not to send arms to Russia for use in Ukraine. And consequential new reporting too on the possible origin of COVID from China. More on all of that in just a few moments. But first, we do head to Nigeria, where results are finally appearing, characterised as a third force candidate. Election officials say the Labour Party's Peter Obi has won Lagos State. That's the country's most populous region. The state is typically a stronghold of the ruling APC party. It is, of course, though, a historic election with the country's two-party system facing an unprecedented challenge by Obi's Labour Party. But the election has been overshadowed by widespread reports of delays and technical issues. Many voters have complained of intimidation and attempts to suppress their votes. Larry Mado joins us now live from Lagos. Larry, always great to have you with us. I can see people standing behind you. It's not just about the ability to vote in this election. It's also the ability to access cash. Huge questions, I think, being asked about the delays here. How concerned are we that perhaps people question the ultimate result when we finally get it? That is a possibility here, Julia, because for the first time in Nigeria, there was no former military leader or no incumbent running for president. There were 18 people, but three men realistically had a chance to win. There were two from the established parties, as you mentioned, Tinubu and Atiku. But the man that has excited the youth 
was Peter Obi. He's the one that got young people to register in record numbers. And that's why they were trying to change Nigeria because situations like this, you see a situation outside a bank where people are queuing up for money because Nigeria recently demonetized higher currencies of the Naira. It led to a massive shortage in chaotic scenes outside banks and the election is over, they were queuing up to vote. Now they're queuing up to access their own money. And these are some of the inconveniences of living in Nigeria that people have been telling us they want to change to. They don't want to have to queue up like this to access their own money. And that is why people who didn't have a chance to vote because of disruptions and violence and delays were so upset that they were denied a chance to actually ha have their voices heard and get to determine their leaders. I spoke to some of them. Nothing works in this country. There is no security. There is no good hospitals. There is neither good roads. Nothing works. The educational system is in shambles. I must fight for my daughter, Prince. I must fight for her. She must have a better life. We are tired. Me, I'm tired. I'm tired of seeing this crap. You're tired. That's what she said before is that nothing works in this country. And this is truly a sign of a dysfunctional society that people have to queue up for their own money, Julia. And sometimes they get sent home because the bank has run out of cash. This demonetization and redesign of Naira notes has been an absolute disaster. Everybody agrees with that. And these are some of the symbols of an economy that's on the verge of collapse. A third of Nigerians are unemployed and the economy has not been doing well the past eight years under President Muhammadu Buhari. That is why so many people were looking for a change. Yeah, and huge questions there, and you saw it there, and, and the passion for one lady in particular. We, the country should be investing in things like healthcare and in education to help people, but money's going in, in sort of fuel subsidies in other directions. We're going to be picking up on this with the, the Nigerian finance minister shortly. Just in the short term, Larry, do we have any sense of, of how long this is going to take? And what are the big contenders saying about just having some patience here and waiting for the results, if anything? It might be a few more days until we know who the next president of Nigeria will be because they've only announced three, four states right now. Nigeria has 36 states and Abuja, the federal capital territory. So it might be into tomorrow or the day after until we get a, good, a better sense of who will be the leader. The three main contenders have been mostly silent, no significant statements because they're waiting to see, I think, more results until they determine whether or not they're winning or losing and what do they need to tell their supporters. But in the meantime, this is a common scene, these chaotic scenes outside banks, people clamoring to access their own money in Africa's largest economy, Africa's most populous nation, and yet so many, so many inconveniences, so much wahala, troubles in Nigerian pigeon. Yeah. Larry, thanks for being there and helping us understand the people's frustration. Reporting there from Lagos. Thank you. Highly unlikely. That's Beijing's firm response to the U.S. Energy Department's assessment that the COVID-19 virus accidentally leaked from a lab in Wuhan. The relevant party should stop stir-frying the argument of a laboratory leak, stop vilifying China, and stop politicizing the issue of origin tracing. Sources telling CNN the Energy Department made the conclusion with, quote, low confidence. Natasha Bertrand joins us now on this story. Natasha, it may be made with low confidence, but it does now unite them with the FBI in saying the probable and likely origin of this virus was in a lab in Wuhan. It does set them perhaps against other agencies, though, that, that are saying differently or unwilling to conclude. What does this mean and what evidence do they have to support this? 
Well, that's the big question right now. And just to take a step back, what the intelligence community did recently was they provided an update to Congress about their investigation into the origins of the pandemic. And in that broader update, the uh, there was a section from the Department of Energy that said that that agency had essentially changed from undecided to this assessment, that it was the most likely explanation in their opinion that this likely leaked from a laboratory in Wuhan. However, important caveat there, they said that they only had low confidence in that assessment. That indicates that they did not have robust enough intelligence to draw a more definitive conclusion or say that with more confidence, right? So the the Department of Energy joins the FBI in uh, basically concluding that the most likely explanation for what happened was that this came from a lab. But still, the big agencies here, the big intel agencies, for example, the CIA, they still do not believe they have enough information to say one way or another whether this leaked from a lab or whether it came from an animal, for example. The other leading theory being that this virus jumped from an animal, say, from the uh, seafood market in Wuhan. Now, it is important to note here that the intelligence community has made very clear that they do not believe that they can ever get a really definitive explanation for this without the full cooperation of the Chinese government, right? And so what they have been saying repeatedly since 2021, when they released their first report on COVID origins, is that without Beijing's cooperation and without scientists and analysts on the ground able to study the source, really, of this outbreak, it is going to be extremely difficult to ever find a definitive explanation for where this virus actually came from. Yes, and it leaves the uh, supposition. Um, And that's what will happen and what is happening. And I think millions of people and families who lost loved ones um, still deserve to know. Natasha Bertrand, thank you so much for that to Ukraine now. At least two people died in a Russian drone attack in the western city of Kamalitsky. This after Russia launched at least 14 drones. The Ukrainian military says it shot down 11 of them, mostly near the capital, Kyiv. Meanwhile, President Zelensky fired one of his top military commanders. His reason for doing so has not yet been made clear. And here in the United States, the head of the CIA confirming the possibility of China's lethal aid to Russia. We're confident that the Chinese leadership is considering the provision of lethal equipment. We also don't see that a final decision has been made yet. This comes after CNN reported on Friday that Beijing is considering sending drones and ammunition to Moscow. Kylie Atwood joins us now with more. Kylie, good to have you with us. Profound implications on the battlefield and for geopolitical relationships too. But I think the messaging here seems to be key. The United States is poignantly saying to China, look, we know what you're doing and we want you to think twice, it seems. That's right. And you heard CIA Director Bill Burns over the weekend say that essentially the goal here is to deter China from going ahead with this decision and actually providing uh, military lethal assistance to Russia to be used in Ukraine. Because what U.S. officials have been saying is that that final decision hasn't been made by Chinese leadership, even though they are confident, uh, as you heard in that soundbite, that they are considering it. What the United States feels is that they could back away from it. And obviously, they believe that China should. As you said, there would be battlefield implications here because any additional military assistance for Russia could prolong this war. And that is exactly what U.S. officials don't want. So what they're doing is talking publicly about the costs that will be inflicted on China if it does go ahead with this. 
Listen to what National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said on CBS on, uh, sorry, excuse me, on CNN on Sunday uh, when speaking about the cost that would be associated with this. Beijing will have to make its own decisions about how it proceeds, whether it provides military assistance. But if it goes down that road, it will come at real cost to China. And I think China's leaders are weighing that as they make their decisions. And while they are not publicly detailing what those costs would be, we do know that privately they have been more detailed. U.S. officials, including uh, Secretary of State Antony Blinken, have had conversations with Chinese officials in recent weeks and pretty much laid out what those costs and consequences would be. So uh, it's a very tense moment right now as we wait to watch to see what U.S. intelligence is gathering in terms of any final decision that has been made from uh, the Chinese about providing this lethal assistance. Yeah, that was going to be my next question is clearly it's not being made clear to the West what those consequences would be. But if those discussions are being had directly with China behind the scenes, then um, at least everybody's on the same page. Kylie, great to have you with us. Thank you. Kylie Atwood there. OK, let's head to Hong Kong now, where four people have been charged in connection with the killing of model and influencer Abby Choi, including her ex-husband and her former in-laws. CNN's Christy Lustout has more. We must warn you, too. The report contains graphic details. A fashion model and mother brutally murdered in Hong Kong in a case that is sending shockwaves through the usually safe city. 28-year-old Abby Choi was a well-known social media influencer with more than 100,000 followers on Instagram who just weeks ago appeared on the digital cover of a luxury magazine. She was reported missing on Wednesday. On Friday, police say pieces of her body were found in a refrigerator in the northern Taipo district of Hong Kong. They also found a meat slicer and an electric saw. And later, police discovered a head, ribs and hair in a soup pot. It's a skull with hair, okay? And uh, as I said, unfortunately, there's a hole uh, on the um, right side rear um, um, on the skull. So I've the, the, the pathologists believe that that should be the, the fatal, fatal attack on the victim. Police arrested Abby Choi's ex-husband on suspicion of murder on Saturday. Police said they caught him at a pier on the city's Lantau Island. Reuters reports that Choi's ex-husband, Alex Kwong, appeared here at the Kowloon City Magistrate's Court on Monday. Along with his father and brother, they are all accused of murder. Kwong's mother also appeared in court. She's accused of obstructing the case. All four were denied bail. Over the weekend, authorities launched a massive search operation to track down the rest of the model's remains. They deployed more than 100 police officers, including an abseil team and divers, to search a cemetery and nearby catchwater in the area of Tsiungkwano. They're still looking for several body parts. A gruesome murder of this young woman in the spotlight who leaves behind four children, including two from the ex-husband who is now in custody. Christy Lu Stout, CNN, Hong Kong. And coming up on First Move, high inflation, weakening growth, a physical cash crunch and a young and frustrated population. Nigeria's next leader faces multiple challenges. The nation's finance minister joins us next to discuss.
Welcome back to First Move. Nigerians are anxiously waiting to find out who will lead the country after the hotly contested presidential election over the weekend. Like many countries, the last three years have brought on a number of challenges. The pandemic, volatile energy prices and a currency at an all-time low. Growth is also declining. Inflation is in double digits and there are widespread cash and gasoline shortages. The three frontrunners in the election have all promised to fix Africa's largest economy. The question is, what now is the best path forward? Joining us is Nigeria's current finance minister, Zainab Ahmed. Finance minister, great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for your time. Um, I want to start by talking about the election, not the result, of course, but just that there is a lot riding on this election, that there's clearly frustration from people about the delays. Do you share their frustration about some of the logistical challenges that we've seen? No, Juliet, I don't uh, share that frustration. The elections were very peaceful, largely peaceful. There are some pockets of uh, challenges, but that is to be expected in every um, election. The results have started streaming in. The logistics for the Nigerian elections is massive. We have 176,000 polling units. And yesterday I was listening to some program on the national TV and a group were discussing the incidents that have been reported. So there were about 135 incidents. Uh, affecting 135 polling units. So there will always be incidents in elections. Uh, I think this one was more peaceful, has been more peaceful than even previous elections. And we're very positive that uh, uh, between today and tomorrow, the results will come in on and we'll, we'll know uh, uh, who the winners are. Yeah, and I think one of the biggest challenges certainly that I've heard is just trust in general in institutions has has been compromised by the challenges that many nations, all nations have faced over the last three or four years in particular. What's your, the government, President Buhari's message to those that are waiting about trust in the result? So President's message was very clear. Go and vote the candidate that you want, the candidate that you feel uh, will deliver what is best for you and for, for the country. And that's what we hope will happen in these elections that have been quite free and fair uh, so far. Um, Nigeria, like most uh, countries of the world, have been faced with this poly crisis from crashing crude oil price in the case of Nigeria to the COVID-19 pandemic to the Ukraine war. It's had been crisis after crisis, one after the other. In fact, triple crisis at the same time, including climate crisis that we've also faced in Nigeria. So it's been very difficult times for the country, but also very difficult times for the world in, in general. I must say that President Buhari has done very well in terms of stabilizing uh, the economy and uh, continuing to move forward despite the, the different crises. Today, uh, last week, uh, uh, I beg your pardon, we reported our 2022 GDP report, and that's the ninth consecutive quarter of growth, a growth rate of 3.52% uh, for Q4 2022, and an annual rate of 3.10%. Amongst the kind of challenges we're living with, that is a very impressive performance. I know. You're talking about stability, though. It's I think it's natural for people to want more. We, we just had a Nigerian woman shown on the show talking about needing better health care, needing better education. Um, there's only so much money to go around. And I think it's very easy for people on the outside or outside of the country to, to write a list of what needs to happen. But three of the things I think that, that are most often pointed out, 
and you know them well, fuel subsidies need to be cut. The exchange rate needs unifying. Import FX restrictions need reducing or removing entirely. How do you achieve all of these things without seeing ordinary Nigerians revolt? Reform is hard. How much of that can you tackle even between now and May? It's been a juggling act. On fuel subsidy, the president is really determined to remove fuel subsidy before he exits so that he's not leaving the next administration, whichever one it is, with that responsibility. Because whenever you remove fuel subsidy, there are consequences. So we have to plan well enough to make sure that the hardships that will be caused is mitigated as much as possible. But we need to get rid of the fuel subsidy. It's been a drain on resources. And uh, I think people, at least all of the contestants, without exception, have uh, have said in different fora that this needs to go because these are resources that we could have invested in education or health. And we're holding on to subsidy that is um, uh, just for consumption and it's also a very inefficient uh, one so far. Yeah, and I think one of the... the biggest challenges, and I know President Buhari promised to tackle it, was, was corruption, particularly in the, the oil and gas sector, and the, the heartbreaking fact that as a result of all of these things, even when oil prices go up, uh, the Nigerian people barely benefit, which I know is one of the challenges too. Um, on that note, I read recently that the median age of the population is, is 18, that 60% of people are under 25. Um, these people have we hope, 50, 60, 70 years to live. Um, what, do, what do ordinary Nigerians need to understand about their behaviour, finance minister, too, to, to help the country and help manage the reforms well, that need to take place? I, I just hope people understand that this large population that we have that are young are actually the best assets that we have in the country today because these young people are educated, they're technology savvy, what we need to do as governments, present and incoming, is to retool and reskill them to take advantages of the innovation and technology that, that, that we live in today to enable them have uh, better job opportunities and also to work for themselves and set up their own businesses. So the, the youth population we have are today the greatest assets that we have in, in, in Nigeria. Yeah, and we, we should be having a conversation about that rather than talking about the challenges, which is another heartbreaking thing. Um, you know, one thing I noticed from, from your financial accounts, and I know you're going to try and bring this down as quickly as possible, but I believe 80% of the government's revenues went to debt repayments. Um, Finance Minister, does there need to be a bigger conversation about adjusting the debt responsibilities for Nigeria at this moment, and that's not to negate responsibilities, but just to allow money to flow to the important things like education, climate change, adaption finance. Does there need to be have a conversation about so, some so form of debt the eighty percent, the the debt, uh, the the eighty percent that you mentioned is not the average for the year. For twenty twenty two, the average is about sixty. 162%. That's the average for there. And even at that, it is high. So what we're doing is to increase our revenue. And we've seen very good results coming out of that. In 2021, our total revenue was 6 trillion naira. 2022, we closed at 10 trillion naira. So there has been a lot of effort and results coming out. And once we free ourselves 
of the burden of things like false subsidy that is costing a lot, then the numbers will change and the situation will improve, coupled with all the fundamental works we've uh, done to ensure consistent increase in our revenue profile, we should be able to, within the medium term, um, come to a healthier level of debt service to revenue ratio. You know, our debt levels are still, are still uh, uh, reasonable. And um, we, we are, we're, we're, even when we bring in the ways and means of the central bank with the legislature is currently working on, we're still going to be around 38% of GDP. And that's, uh, that's uh, still the healthiest level amongst countries within our peer group. Yes, I was about to say, you compare that debt level to um, some of the nations in Europe or, or the United States, and it's, um, it's fractional. But of course, the, the debt service cost, to your point, um, is incredibly high. Um, Finance Minister, I think anybody listening to you will, um, will perhaps argue that um, you don't feel like the job's finished yet. And I don't want you to predict the election result, because I know that's very difficult. But if your party won this election and you were asked, would you stay on? as finance minister and, and continue the job? Uh, Judith, I'm not in a position to answer this question right now. Okay. She you says with a coy smile. Fair. That's <laughs> an unfair one. <laughs> what about leading the country one day? Would you consider that? Uh, I, I'm not sure about that. I'm not cut out to be a co-politician. Um, and I haven't been very much involved in playing the party politics. I've been working largely in the technical space, trying to support the president and the team to enable to provide the, the funding and the enabling environment for government to work well. Yeah, focused on the job. Um, we'll let you get back to it. The Nigerian finance minister there, Zainab Ahmed. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much, Julie. Thanks. Thank you. OK, coming up after the break, the EU and the UK impose Brexit talks to resolve a bitter sticking point from the separation. But at what cost? That's next. And welcome back to First Move. New York City is gearing up for what could be its first substantial snowfall of the year. On Tuesday, I have to say, it's about time. All of us here are waiting the white stuff. No, that is nothing more exciting. Wall Street on the board with some green stuff after a week that can only be called rough stuff. U.S. stocks coming off their worst losses of the year with the tech sector getting hit the hardest. All this because of the usual stuff. And you know it well, fears of a more aggressive Federal Reserve. Famed investor Warren Buffett, however, is still bullish. The Oracle of Omaha saying in his just released annual newsletter that he has never bet against the U.S. economy. And he says he's not ready to turn bearish now. And in the meantime, Plugged In Progress is being celebrated in Barcelona today, where the World Mobile World Congress is underway. This year, a big battle is brewing over who will pay their fair share for new tech rollouts. Anna Stewart is at the conference and joins me now. Anna, we should be honest, I was so excited to talk about chat GPT and you said to me on WhatsApp earlier, Julie, that's so December. <laughs> that's, that says everything. Um, well, if you're going to pick an argument with big tech, then Brussels or somewhere in Europe is the best place to do it. In this case, Barcelona. 
it, it really is. This is where you should have these big fights. And this is one that's been brewing, I think, for many months. But it was really launched last week with Thierry Breton, EU Commissioner for the Internal Market, launching what they're calling a consultation, a 12-week consultation on fair share. So this is a battle about who should pay for the future of high-speed internet, which, after all, is going to underpin all the hot new technologies you see around here, including AI and ChatGPT. I got it in there. Uh, but also, of course, Web3. VR headsets, it's all very data hungry. And the cost of the infrastructure that's needed to speed up the internet and keep it running for all these technologies is vast. According to the GSMA, which hosts this event and represents all the big telecoms, $1.5 trillion is needed between now and 2030. And telecoms say they can't afford to foot the bill all by themselves. So the CEO of Orange today was stood up by her keynote speech. She said around half of European mobile carriers will struggle to survive. They want to see other firms, particularly those that stream content, the big tech firms, also help pay for that. Now, of course, big tech are not liking this at one bit at all. We've had a, a statement from Meta that says value flows both ways between telecoms companies and content hosting platforms. They say they already invest a lot to keep their stuff uh, online, facilitate streaming. And they already see that they actually drive lots of content and they are one of the key drivers for people taking out lots of contracts with mobile phone companies, with network companies for broadband and high-speed internet. So this is a battle, I think, that will run quite hotly for the next 12 weeks. This is really the stage for the telecoms companies. So we're not really seeing big tech here as much, but it's got 12 weeks to run. Julia? Yeah, I can understand their argument, though, from, from big tech. If they pay this fee, then it arguably is telco operators charging both customers and then the content providers for, for the same service. Um, my response mm -hmm. to that would be hard luck. Anna, what's it like there? Because obviously this is the first Mobile World Congress since we saw China reopening. What kind of presence do they have in particular? What's the buzz? It's a really interesting one this year. It's definitely a lot busier than it was last year, around 80,000 attendees expected. It's not as big as it was pre-pandemic, and I wonder if it ever will be. Chinese phone makers, like you said, absolutely dominate. OnePlus, Oppo, Xiaomi, Huawei, Honor. But what's really interesting is this used to be the place where the latest mobile phone handset was launched from all sorts of different phone makers. That's not really the case anymore. Generally, they are launched with their own standalone events. The Chinese phone makers are generally launching phones that they've already launched in China, but internationally. There were a couple, though, that caught my interest. OnePlus have launched a new handset that's got blue lights around the back. It's kind of a cool design. It's a concept phone. And the other was Motorola, which has built on what was a trend for the last few years of foldable phones. But it's built a rollable one. So if you like, the screen sort of rolls round the back of your phone. You can extend it. So some interesting concepts, some interesting designs. But really, I think this year, it's less about what's going on in the booths and what's really going on on that main stage, all these big arguments between telcos and tech. Julia? Yes. I'm just glad you're there, Anna, and haven't been replaced by some kind of AI bot and the same for myself. We're hanging on in there. Anna Stewart, <laughs> thank you so much. Have fun. Okay, coming up after the break, some trash talk. They sound very American. Lifting the lid on the startup trying to solve the climate crisis one banana skin at a time. That's it. Breaking news just into CNN. We understand a deal has been reached between the United Kingdom and the European Union to overhaul the Northern Ireland Brexit protocol. Ursula von der Leyen has been at Windsor Castle meeting with UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. Nick Robertson is following events from London. Nick, what more information do we have on this deal? And can you help my viewers understand once again what this Brexit protocol is? 
Well, it's, it is the last bit of big, outstanding Brexit issue between the UK and the European Union. And it's vital politically for Prime Minister Rishi Sunak to pull this off, to get the support of his party. They haven't had a chance to look at it yet. He is expected to go to Parliament later today and explain it to Parliament. Um, there's another big part of this as well, and, it, and that question is, how well does this go down in Northern Ireland, particularly with the pro-British unionist community, specifically the Democratic Unionist Party? They're saying they're going to have to take some time to look at it. But the fact a deal has been done and it's announced today after this meeting is a huge headline here in the UK. It's not without surprise because there's been a lot of diplomatic effort to close the gaps. A lot of goodwill, it appears, uh, expressed on both the part of the European Union, on the part of the British government, to close the gaps and find accommodation to what's been a very, very vexing issue, which is essentially trade between the main part of the United Kingdom and Northern Ireland across the Irish Sea. Um, it's been a thorn in a political thorn in the side for the Democratic Unionist Party that it appears that essentially a trade barrier has been created between them and the rest of the United Kingdom. So what they'll be looking for in this, and they've got seven points to look for, specific points that they want to make sure this new deal addresses, will be that they are part that they feel that there is free trade between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK. And also they, they feel that the European Court of Justice does not have an overriding control over the laws that people will live by in Northern Ireland. Now, there's, that's going to be a very sort of difficult uh, diplomatic language that is used to explain how this process will move forward because the EU also has strong views on this. But I think it is a measure of the compromises that have been made along the way, particularly over the past couple of months, that this announcement is coming today, that a deal has been done. But it is likely to be a very thick, heavy legal document that's going to take some time for any of us uh, specifically the DUP, to be able to go through and figure out where there may be things that they have issues with. Yeah, big smiles there from Rishi Sunak and uh, Ursula von der Leyen. So the hope is that they've managed to achieve this. Nick, I think some of the biggest complaints have been the sheer quantity of red tape involved with trade. Obviously, what you've said here is that we're trying to prevent this sort of hard border for goods between Northern Ireland and Ireland without having Northern Ireland feeling that they're in some way segregated or treated differently from, from the mainland United Kingdom. Um, logistically, this still feels challenging. It does. And we've had a few sort of hints, leaks from government over the past month or so that indicate where the deal might be landing. And part of that has indicated, you know, uh, truckers who, who take goods between the mainland UK and Northern Ireland, goods that might be sold in supermarkets in, in Belfast, sandwiches, for example, that, that sort of go over on a daily basis. Um, things like that have required a lot of paperwork to get them across the Irish Sea to Northern Ireland, which is part of the UK. That's, a, that's at the root of the complaint here. Um, and if their trucks, for example, have had lots of different multiple loads on, taking a variety of different goods, then that's required a huge amount of paperwork, leading to hours and hours and hours of delay um, crossing over the Irish Sea. That's been the concern. So one approach appears to be, this is what's been leaked, that there will be red and green channels. A green channel if the goods are only going to Northern Ireland. 
a red channel if they're going to go to the European Union across the border, go to Northern Ireland, then across the border into the Republic of Ireland. Of course, the, the European Union wants a good deal of scrutiny on that. And it's been speculated that possibly the EU will have uh, access to real-time live data of what's on those trucks going into the, uh, on the red channel. But all this requires a level of trust. And I think that's part of the accommodation that's been found over the past couple of years to this issue, that it required a greater degree of trust between, between the UK and the EU um, that this type of mechanism could work. But again, it's going to come down to the, 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 the legal detail, specifically saying what can go and what can't go. For example, until now, if you wanted to take your pet dog from uh, UK mainland to Northern Ireland, something you used to be able to do before Brexit with, with freedom, um, it's, required, uh, it's required to have the same level of, of, of checks and passes, health checks and passes on your pet um, as if you were taking that pet to the European Union, yet mm. you were only taking it to another part of the United Kingdom. Um, so a lot of, uh, there's a lot of detail we've got to hear about yet. Yeah, let's hope we've reached that point of trust that you were talking about, and um, mm. we need to understand the monitoring required on this too. Nick, thank you. Nick Robertson there. Welcome back to First Move. The cultural scene is riding high in Dubai, apparently. The government there creating new opportunities for global content creators, as is explained in today's Think Big. Today I'm going to show you how to make a delicious gnocchi with pumpkin sauce. Zara Abdullah is one of many creatives who've made a name for themselves in Dubai. You have a little studio. <laughs> is the kitchen always in studio, lights, camera, action? Pretty much, pretty much. In 2020, she was one of 70,000 people working in the city's creative field, a number Dubai wants to double by 2025 as part of a new strategy designed to diversify its economy. The ultimate goal for Dubai is to create this pool of talent, make sure that this talent is, is educated, has everything that it requires to run its business, and then this transforms into healthy businesses that in the future will actually contribute positively to our Economy. The creative economy is one of the world's fastest growing sectors. In 2022, the United Nations reported that it accounts for 3.1% of global GDP. Recognizing this potential, Dubai's new policy introduced a special cultural golden visa to grant those like Zara long-term residency to cultivate their careers in the Emirates. The golden visa allows you security. It allows you to stay within the city for 10 years. It ensures sustainability for your business. I always felt like this is a transitionary city. And after we got the golden visa, I truly feel that Dubai is home. To replicate that feeling of home for those abroad, this new scheme also helps establish new hubs to entice foreign talent and investment. The industrial area of Al Quds, for example, is being revamped. When we create a platform like Algoa's Creative Zone, that allows people to come and create. It allows for jobs in the manufacturing sector. One entrepreneur drawn in by this growing artistic community is Kwame Minta. As the co-founder of FEA Gallery in Alcuz, he sees firsthand how the city's action plan is changing the world's perception of Dubai. 
It's like a vehicle. So the gallery acts as a vehicle between artists and the creative economy here in Dubai. When an artist wants to become international, previously the only thought was to go to Europe or to go to America. But now the Middle East has really opened up its areas and its landscape as a destination artists want to exhibit in. As the city works to raise its creative sector's GDP contribution to 5% by 2025, Dubai-based creators like Zara can only benefit from the policies turning the Emirate into an international hub for creativity. It's giving us the space to thrive and feel like you are part of the tapestry. It's really exciting to see everyone celebrated, from the doctors and the lawyers and the entrepreneurs to the students and the artists and the people who traditionally wouldn't have been celebrated in this part of the world. We've seen how Russia's war on Ukraine has forced millions to flee the country and displaced others within its borders. But pets and animals have also been left homeless. And one Ukrainian girl is doing her best to make sure they don't go hungry. As CNN's Michael Holmes reports. In the wreckage of this bombed-out apartment block in Borodyanka, there are signs of the lives once lived here, exposed rooms where families once gathered before Russian bombs reduced their homes to rubble. Most of the people have long since gone, but 11-year-old Veronica says she regularly returns to her former neighbourhood. Our apartment was over there, on the ninth floor. Veronica says she can still see the shell of her former home, but that's not why she comes back. I used to come here to search for my cat. I wanted to feed it, and I saw all the other cats here. I felt sorry for them, and now I come here regularly to feed them. The strays purr a welcome as she doles out food in what used to be a playground. Veronica says she did eventually find her cat, but the time outside had changed him, and he now prefers the wildlife. So instead of one pet, she takes care of him and many other cats in the area, who, like humans, have learned to adapt to life during war. Veronica's mother came with her on this feeding session. Looking up at her old flat, she chokes back emotion, thinking how much has changed in just a year. <laughs> with a pat on the head, they say goodbye to one of the regulars. Veronica says she'd like to take the cats with her. But for now, this arrangement, survivors helping survivors, will have to do. Michael Holmes, CNN. Oh. Okay, a historic winter storm is causing havoc across the United States. More than six feet of snow falling in parts of Southern California, hurricane-force winds whipping up blinding dust storms in Texas, and powerful tornadoes ripping through Oklahoma and Kansas. This is the scene in Norman, just south of Oklahoma City, where a tornado touched down. Police and firefighters are searching through the wreckage this morning. They say at least 12 people are hurt, but no reported deaths. Just take a listen to this woman who was inside her home with her family when the tornado struck. Before I can even blink, I could hear the wind coming. All of a sudden, all the back windows where the kids' bedrooms are, I could hear them uh, just crashing, busting out. And uh, I got up, and then the wind just threw me back, and I'm screaming. It was like a blizzard inside the house with all the debris flying. And I was screaming for my kids, you know, because they were in their bedrooms. <laughs> I didn't know if they were hurt or anything. Wow. 
Ed Lavendera has more. A massive storm system barreled through the central plains Sunday night. So traditionally, the southern plains, tornado alley, if you will, doesn't really start to come alive with these tornadoes and these severe weather outbreaks until maybe March, uh, especially April and May. That's the you know peak tornado severe season here uh, in the southern plains. But you know, so this is a uh, quite an early uh, wake up call. Multiple tornadoes touched down in the region as well. In Norman, Oklahoma, a tornado caused down power lines and road closures. This is terrible to have this uh, tornado going through Norman like this. It's just past 48th and Lindsay moving up to the northeast and we're going to try to get back on I-40 and get out ahead of it again. We're going as fast as we can. That is not good right there on the west side of Thunderbird, guys. Oh, it's getting even stronger. The storm ripped roofs off homes and damaged cars. A lot of real strong wind. I was standing out in the garage. My wife went to the neighbors to get in a shelter. Uh, wood and debris started flying and hitting things, so I jumped in the back seat of a car in the garage real quick. Two tornadoes were reported in Kansas on Sunday, leaving homes in the area destroyed. Winds in the triple digits were felt, the highest in Memphis, Texas, where winds hit a staggering 114 miles per hour, the equivalent of a Category 3 hurricane. In Lubbock, Texas, a dust storm rolled through, leaving visibility in the area to less than a mile. And in Albuquerque, New Mexico, winds topped over 70 miles per hour, leaving overturned trees and businesses damaged. I'm in shock, you know, but uh, because we love our restaurant, we, we love our work. This amount of damage with this wind, I haven't seen anything like this for the 20 plus years that I've been living here. This storm system started in California, where parts of Southern California saw a rare storm that dumped massive amounts of snow in the area. Huge snow totals were seen throughout the region, including Mountain High, which recorded 93 inches of snow through Sunday morning. Rain was dumped on other parts of California, causing flooding and leaving cars stranded. California firefighters were seen rescuing this driver by helicopter as floodwaters continued to rise. The storm left the ground so eroded that this RV fell into the Valencia River. I'm just kind of afraid we're going to have to evacuate if it gets any worse. Okay, and finally, on First Move, it's time to make the first move and pucker up. A new device from China could be a huge bonus for people in long-distance relationships. It allows people to kiss each other remotely using the internet. Yes, you heard me right. By that, I mean it has all sorts of sensors and moves around to replicate a kiss, which includes smooching sounds, apparently. And apparently, it only costs $41. How much? But you do, of course, need to choose your moment. I'm not sure you'd want to be seen doing this on public transport. Or maybe you would. Who knows? That's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. In the meantime, Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. 
And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.